everyone. Welcome to episode 180 of the Book Cougars, two middle-aged women on the hunt for a good read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. Episode 180. Do you know what that means? It's another 10th episode, so it is giveaway time. We have two books to give away, and the rules of our giveaways are you need to be on our newsletter email list. That's all. Super easy. If you're not yet, it's never too late. Go to bookcougars.com, and you'll see there's a tab there where you can subscribe. All we need is your email. We send one newsletter a month. Yes, indeed. And we do a random number generator to pick the winner. So good luck. Um, If you're a new listener, we do a giveaway every 10th episode. We also have other giveaways randomly, um, but that you can always count on. That's right. And so the two books we're giving away, these will be sent together, are End Papers by Jennifer Saverin Kelly. Oh, love this novel so much. I think you'll be hearing about it again. I suspect it might be on Chris's top 10. It definitely is going to be. I I say that completely confident. I mean, it's just brilliant. I'm already wanting to reread it. Oh, maybe that'll be your treat when you're done with grad school. That'd be fun. Mm -hmm. And then Night Flight to Paris by Kara Black. Kara Black was an author I saw at the very first Booktopia I went to in Santa Cruz. Really interesting woman. She spends a lot of time in Paris. So this book takes place in Paris. Nice. Yeah. And so each of her novels take place in a different neighborhood in Paris, from what I understand. Yeah. Arrondissement. Arrondissement. And these are both (laughs) hardcover, brand new, hot off the press books. So good luck to all of you. Yes. And thank you to Algonquin and Soho Crime. Then we also have our Patreon giveaway. This book comes to us from Counterpoint Press. It's called The Dig. It's a novel by Ann Burt. This one just came out and it's getting rave reviews. Yeah, it's on my list. And that's a cool cover too. It's like you see some people have vehicles at the very bottom and then there's this dramatic angry red sunset reflecting on the clouds. Yes, I've been seeing her. She's out on book tour, Ann Burt. I'd like to catch her. I tried a couple of weeks ago, but I had a conflict. Anyway, if you are a Patreon you are automatically entered to win this book as well. We give our Patreon giveaways on the 15th of the month. So go to patreon.com slash bookcougars to learn more. Yeah, we appreciate your support so much with that. We do. And we have a thank you to Helen, one of our patrons who increased her monthly patronage, which is something that's really easy to do. Thank you so much, Helen. We so appreciate it. Yeah, and when I sent her a little thank you email, she emailed us back and said she had a book to recommend to us, Mm. West with Giraffes by Linda Rutledge. And it's a novel based on a true story about two giraffes that made headlines during the Depression when these giraffes were being delivered to the San Diego Zoo. Mm. It sounds really fun. When she first emailed me and I looked at it, I thought it was nonfiction, but it's a fictionalized version of a true story. It sounds like some cool historical fiction. Yes, exactly. Thank you, Helen, for both things. We really appreciate it. We always love getting book recommendations from our amazing readers out there. Absolutely. That giveaway will be on May 15th. The giveaway to the newsletter subscribers will be on May 1st. So you have some time to get in on that newsletter subscriber list. Yes. And I can't believe it's going to be May so soon. I know. The lusty month of May. (laughs) For all you Camelot fans out there. 
Chris is just excited because that means grad school is coming to an end, which of course is bittersweet. It is bittersweet. It's been a fabulous semester, but my eyes, I feel like I need toothpicks to keep them open right now. (laughs) (laughs) She's a wee tired. So speaking of which, what are you currently reading? Can you even read anything? (laughs) (laughs) So funny that you should say that. I'm actually listening to still Writing for Impact by Bill Burchard. His new book that just came out, Eight Secrets from Science That Will Fire Up Your Reader's Brains. So this is on when I'm in the car. And I Googled him yesterday because I don't know anything about him. And I found that he's been writing articles about the techniques that he talks about on Psychology Today. Oh, interesting. Which is really cool. So we'll put a link in the show notes to that. One just published today, actually. Engage people by keeping it surprising. So like surprising, specific, simple. These are the different ways that he's looking at how scientists have studied the effects of reading on the brain and how people respond to different things when they're reading or writing. It's really interesting. And the point then is to try to be a writer that can speak to those things, right? And think about that as you're writing. Yes, to engage your writers more, to get their brains fired up and wanting to read your stuff because it's better writing. It's written more for humans. So today when I was driving over to the library, he was talking about keeping it personal and sharing personal vulnerabilities and things like that. And it really made me think about Travels with Charlie by Steinbeck, which we both just read and we'll talk about a little bit later in the episode and how he shares his vulnerabilities while he's on the road with Charlie. As a reader, it's kind of cool to read a writing book and think about it in terms of how you appreciate what you're reading, why yeah. you do or why you don't, you know. But then as a writer, too, of course, you're reading it for that kind of advice. Oh, that's really cool. I hadn't thought about it also from the perspective of looking at what he's talking about in the books you're reading now. Yeah. Right, yeah. Cool. yeah. Yeah, so again... That is Writing for Impact by Bill Burchard. I'm listening to it on Libro. We're an affiliate with Libro.fm, which is an alternative to Audible if you're looking for a way to get audiobooks into your earbuds. We love them. They help independent bookstores, which is a really lovely thing. Yeah, part of each purchase goes to a local independent bookstore that you choose yourself. Or you can have it on a general setting and a piece of the pie gets divvied up to all independent bookstores in the country that are participating in their program. And I like it a lot. I've been using them now for way over a year. I think their app is very usable. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Cool. I'm reading The East Indian, a novel by Brenda Chari. This book publishes on May 9th. Thank you to Scribner for sending me an advanced copy. Brenda is going to be an author at Booktopia, which is an event we'll be talking about in our upcoming segment. I just happened to pick this up because I have it both as an ebook and as a paper copy. And I started reading it. I thought I was just going to flip through it, to be honest with you. And then I read this first sentence in the prologue. A witch was hanged from the yardarm of the ship on the fourth week of my voyage to America. And I was like, okay, I'm in. (laughs) It's amazing how one sentence (laughs) can make you feel that way. Yes. So I'm just barely in, but the main protagonist is a young boy named Tony who came via India and is traveling on this ship to America. 
And it is about slavery, sadly, and the earliest slaves in our country here in America. Now, I will say that Brenda is a novelist that has a background in English Renaissance literature, Shakespeare specifically. So there is a theme here of Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream, which really surprised me and I thought was a synchronicity because the novel I just finished reading had a complete thread of A Midsummer's Night Dream running through it. Oh, wow. Yeah. Isn't that funny? So I haven't gotten to that part of the book, so I don't know how that's going to appear. But the narration of it so far is really captivating. Like, I feel like I care about Tony so much already, and I'm only 20 pages in or something. Cool. Yeah, so I look forward to meeting the author, too, in a couple of weeks. Again, the name of this book is The East Indian by Brenda Chari. Well, the other book I'm currently reading is a little bit of a fantasy book right now. It's a gardening book. (laughs) I don't have time for gardening right now, but come May... In the end of the semester, I am going to be in the dirt. This is a book called Creating Rain Gardens, Capturing the Rain for Your Own Water-Efficient Garden. It's by Chloe Wolfel Erskine and April Uncaffer. It was on display at our local library. They have a nice gardening display. And we have on our house very minimal rain gutters because we have what are called drip strips instead So the water goes right into the ground. It doesn't get directed into the water source in our neighborhood. So I do want to get a rain barrel. I also want to channel some of that runoff in more effective ways. So I'm looking forward to spending some quality time with this book. Very cool. At my old house in Ohio, I had a rain barrel. And I loved it because I could water all of my plants with it. And I I kind of wanted to move it with me, but, you know, it didn't make sense (laughs) because... I didn't really know where I was moving, but they're very useful. Yeah, I've been looking at a lot of different styles, and I definitely want to get one. Funny story, one of my friends in uh, the Chicago area posted a picture of the rain barrel of hers that was frozen solid and split down the middle because somebody didn't empty it before Mm. the cold weather came. (laughs) So that is something I'll definitely remember if I do get one come winter Again, that's Creating Rain Gardens by Cleo Wolfel Erskine and April Uncaffer. I'm reading Three Roads Back, How Emerson, Thoreau, and William James Responded to the Greatest Losses of Their Lives. This is by Robert D. Richardson with a foreword by Megan Marshall. Robert Richardson sadly has passed away. He passed away in 2020. He was the author of three very big works of nonfiction biography, William James in the Maelstrom of American Modernism, Henry Thoreau, A Life of the Mind, and Emerson, The Mind on Fire. It took him 10 years to write each of those books. So those three books are 30 years of writing, which is amazing to me. This is a little tiny book. It's 128 pages, I think. And I'm going to be in conversation with Megan Marshall, who wrote the foreword. She's a Pulitzer Prize winner herself of a biography, Margaret Fuller, A New American Life. And I'm not very far into this, but I can tell already it's going to give me a lot to think about. Megan Marshall herself lost her partner before Richardson wrote this book. So when he contacted her back in 2019, when he was still alive, he was a mentor of hers and was telling her about this book that he was working on. I already had the manuscript finished and asked her if she would read it. 
he knew that it was going to be a challenge for her because this book is about how losses in their life affected their own writing. And that was something that Megan Marshall was in the process of trying to figure out herself at the time. So in the foreword, she talks about how when she first read it, she was deeper in the throes of grief. And as she was able to reflect on it again, when writing the foreword, she had already progressed in the stages of her own grief and read it differently. It's really, you know, even just with her foreword, boy, it gives you a lot to think about. And these men were philosophers. The takeaway I have so far is that they believed that the losses in their lives helped them to see how to live life and very much affected their writing in that way. So as much as I thought, oh, this is going to be such a sad book, it's really a book about resilience, which I really appreciate. It sounds really good. And I love it. It's it's a smaller format book. So it's almost like that gift size mm-hmm. type book. I can imagine this could be like a good graduation present almost. Yeah. And also, you know, a book when you're not sure what to give someone who is suffering from grief. Certainly, I would put that book in this category. So again, it's called Three Roads Back by Robert D. Richardson with a foreword by Megan Marshall. So Emily, what have you just read? Well, I read the other book that I'm going to be in conversation with up at the Newburyport Festival. The Other Family Doctor, a Veterinarian Explores What Animals Can Teach Us About Love, Life, and Mortality. This is by Dr. Karen Fine. I don't know if we're related. That's going to be one of my first <laughs> things to ask her. But but this book really surprised me because it is a memoir. And she does talk about being a veterinarian that does house visits and how different that is because she really does get down on her hands and knees to work with her patients, who are the animals. But by going into people's homes, she also learns more about the animals' lives. And sometimes that helps her a lot with her diagnosis. Hmm. So like one of the stories she tells is that there's an older woman who has this dog that is just really well-trained and pees on its papers, has been doing that. Karen's been going to her house for over 10 years, never a problem. The woman calls her kind of in a panic, like something is wrong. Suddenly she's not peeing on her papers. So Karen goes to her house to discover that all of the Christmas decorations have been put out. And there was something in the way of the dog's papers that was causing her to be distracted. And so she just couldn't go to the bathroom the way she normally did. Hmm. You know, so had the woman brought the dog into the veterinarian office, she might have run a battery of tests and not been able to quite figure out what was going on. So she really talks about the importance of these home visits. So cool. Which, of course, made me wonder, like, I wonder what it would be like for us humans if they still had the days of, you know, the doctor coming to visit you like they did back in the day. Right. Wow. Well, our vet comes to the house. Yeah. And we love her so much. And I didn't really put that together, though, that she can probably see more of our, well, she does see more of our environment and their environment. Right. Yeah. It's very helpful. And then, you know, the other thing she talks about at the beginning of the memoir is how hard it was for her to get admitted into veterinary school and then to find a job after she got out because she was a woman and she's of our generation. So things have definitely changed in the world around that. But I really appreciated that and thought that these women who kind of broke through these barriers have done so much for the younger generation. 
So I was very appreciative to her as I was reading that, thinking about my own daughter who now works in an animal shelter and has a lot of opportunity. She talked also about her own struggles with some illnesses, both with her own pets and then how that informed her about challenges when she was facing some illnesses of her own. And one of the differences she talks about is how animals, they don't know that they should be upset about something the way that we humans are. You know, like if you know you're about to have surgery, we'll do a lot of thinking about the outcome for that, how it's going to affect our lives differently. We get anxiety, we worry, where she talked about one dog who lost a leg and Within two days, the dog was literally back to his old self and his own life and just doing it on three legs instead of four and how different that is for human beings. So that was really interesting. I really enjoyed it. Her writing is light and fun, and it was a really good memoir. I'm Mm. glad I got the chance to read it, and I cannot wait to talk to her about so many things. That's great. So glad you've enjoyed this. Again, it's called The Other Family Doctor. I will say I also listened to the audio and read, and it is narrated by Dr. Karen Fine, the author. Awesome. Yeah. That might be a good road trip listen this summer. Yeah. Yeah. You know, something kind of different. Although then I might miss my dogs at home. Yes. And there's some sad stories. It's not all happy, happy. Yeah. You know, I wanted to be a vet when I was a kid, like millions of other children (laughs) until I realized I would have to do hard things. Yeah, it wasn't just about petting them. And yeah, she talks a lot about euthanasia. Actually, that is a big part of the book. So there's there are definitely hard conversations as well. Yeah. Well, I finished Chase of the Wild Goose by Mary Gordon. This is a novel that came out in 1936 from Hogarth Press and was recently put out in a bright fuchsia new edition by Lurid Editions 2023. It's a joint biography of two 18th century women who were kind of maligned by their own time, but ahead of their time. They're known as the Ladies of Langolin. Lady Eleanor Butler, whose dates are 1739 to 1829, and Sarah Ponsonby. So Sarah Ponsonby, her dates were 1755 to 1831. And they were both Irish women who didn't want to marry just to marry to extend their family's power. They were probably lesbians, and that was probably part of it. But they definitely didn't want to marry. If they married, they wanted to marry for love. And that wasn't happening. They fell in love, and they plotted their escape, which was an escape from their families. And the first time they made an attempt, it didn't go all that well. Lady Butler had found a place, though, in Wales that she purchased on the way to London one time. So that was going to be their place to go to. They eventually make it there, as you know from history. They became the Ladies of Langolin, and they made a really wonderful home together for more than 50 years. Because they were upper class, they weren't completely disowned by their families. They had some income. It made me think how different that time period and their station was that their families didn't and or couldn't just completely disown them because of the social pressure that way. Lady Butler also had an archbishop on her side, which was always helpful, you know, always helpful to have some big gun like that. 
The book itself, it's kind of dry, I have to say. The writing is very dry and detached, but the content is just fantastic. Reading about their lives, how they were raised, and their frustrations with the time period and their culture, and then how they created this wonderfully creative life together. They're both way into books and also art and philosophy. But Gordon wrote this book using primary sources from the ladies of Langolin, like their journal, some letters. And so she was trying to correct the historical record of all of the gossip and malicious rumors that had been created about these two women and their flight from Ireland and then their life in Wales. So she was trying to write a history, but it's also kind of a bit of a novelization because there's some things she doesn't know for sure. The genre doesn't matter as much as the content, let's just put it that way. And then towards the end, there's some interesting ghost stuff. So as dry as the writing is, it was really also surprising at times. So that kept you going with it. Yeah, yeah. it did keep me going. I mean, and I was really interested in the content and what did they do and how did they do it and what became of them? Right. I was more interested in that than in the quality of the writing per se. That's what I mean when I say if you're looking for a read that's going to satisfy you aesthetically, this might not be it. But if you are looking for the history and the lives of these women, the time period, I highly recommend it. So again, that was Chase of the Wild Goose by Mary Gordon. I finished Summer Stage by Meg Mitchell-Moore. This book publishes on May 23rd, just in time for your beach reads, everybody, which is exactly what this book is. It takes place on Block Island, which is an island off of Connecticut that you get to by ferry or if you're lucky enough to own your own big boat. And also in Narragansett, Rhode Island, which is where some of the characters live. It's told from three different points of view. One is Sam, who's in her early 20s, has graduated from high school. Her parents really want her to go to college, but she chose not to. And then her uncle, Timothy, and her mother, Amy. So Amy and Timothy are sister and brother. And when Sam was young, she was a child actor and lived with Timothy for a spell in LA because he too is an actor and a director. And he has come back to Block Island to put on a summer production of A Midsummer Night's Dream by Shakespeare. He's living in a friend's home on the island because he and Amy grew up there. Amy, Sam's mother, has taught high school for years and years, and she gave up her own potential career as a playwright in order to raise her family. The story revolves around the fact that Sam, who had this promising career, and then her parents kind of put a kibosh on it because they wanted her to come back home and live, quote, a normal child's life, is in current day became kind of a social media phenom. And I'm not going to tell you why, because that would spoil a big part of the story. So part of the tension has to do with how Timothy, her older, now kind of on the other side of his career uncle, doesn't have much respect for the younger generation and how they become famous. He worked really hard to become famous in what he perceives as the correct way, which is to be a stage actor. So there's some tension around that, but they all come together over the course of this summer trying to put on this production of A Midsummer Night's Dream. 
If you've read Meg Mitchell Moore's book, I think it was called The Islanders. There are some returning characters, which is fun. And I had read that. So I appreciated that part of the book. It was pure, easy read, pleasure. I enjoyed it. I did not enjoy it as much as that other book, but I did enjoy it. Again, it's called Summer Stage by Meg Mitchell Moore. Well, we had a buddy read of Travels with Charlie. Yes, we did. This is for the Vintage Book Club. That's an in-person book club that we both enjoy very much. We are meeting tomorrow the 20th with the group. So I'm glad we both finished it to talk about it today. I so enjoyed this book. It's a nonfiction account of a road trip that John Steinbeck took with his dog, Charlie. In the early 60s. And I listened to it. It's narrated by Gary Sinise, the actor, which made me think a lot about Forrest Gump, because that was the first time I ever saw Gary Sinise. The narration was really good. I did both. I read and listened. Nice. Yeah, I just read completely. And, you know, I love road trips. I love dogs. So, you know, and I've enjoyed Steinbeck's writing in the past. So I figured I would enjoy this very much. But I love how he talks about how, like, we don't take a trip. A trip takes us, yes. you know, and that whole thing of like, no matter how much you plan, you always have foibles happening along the way. And so I think with age comes knowledge of that and that you do have to have some type of planning. <laughs> you need clean underwear or whatever the case, those basic things, you know, but you also just have to let things unfold as well. You know, the older I get, I also appreciate you don't even really need clean underwear. <laughs> I mean, do you ever notice like you pack all this stuff and then you wear the same thing over and over? I'm like, why did I pack all this stuff? A and B, you can turn underwear inside out. (laughs) But all that being said, he did rig up a very fancy clothes watching system for himself, which I thought was funny. Yes, that was really good. So he had a pickup truck with a camper on the back of it. And the things that he does are just really interesting. I wanted to read one bit too about when he's packing. So this is very early on. I thought I might do some writing along the way, perhaps essays, surely notes, certainly letters. I took paper, carbon, typewriter, pencils, notebooks, and not only those, but dictionaries, a compact encyclopedia, and a dozen other reference books, heavy ones. I suppose our capacity for self-delusion is boundless. And then he says, I knew very well that I rarely make notes. And if I do, I either lose them or can't read them. I also know from 30 years of my profession that I cannot write hot on an event. It has to ferment. It must do what friends call mull it over for a time before it goes down. And in spite of this self-knowledge, I equipped Rosinante with enough writing material to take care of 10 volumes. Also, I laid in 150 pounds of those books one hasn't got around to reading. And of course, those are the books one isn't ever going to get around to reading. (laughs) So I just really enjoy his humor with that and poking fun at himself. I love that too. And as I read that part, I was packing for our weekend in New York and I was planning a weekend where I was going to be so busy, but I still had to take two books with me, like dare to dream, you (laughs) know, so I love that he did that as well. Yeah. Early on in the book, it was kind of a rough start for me because there was some manly ego stuff happening, but then that didn't get carried on, which was good. I think the reason was he wasn't doing well physically, and I think he was struggling with that. 
Yeah, I guess it didn't really bother me. I didn't notice that part. I actually thought some of the things he wrote about aging were really beautiful, you know, like accepting the changes in his face and his body, because he was not a young man when he set off on this trip. He was 58. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying he was old people. (laughs) I'm just saying he was coming to terms with the fact that he was not necessarily as spry as he used to be and starting to notice some things wrong with his body. Well, and he also had health conditions, I learned. Two years prior to this, he and his wife spent a lot of time in France and England, and he actually had passed out several times and was losing feeling in his hands. So she was worried about him in that regard. So he doesn't talk about that. So there's more going on there. Right. That's some of the backstory that he's bringing to his understanding where he is now. And I mean, one of the things I love about a good road trip is you just do get that time to think that you don't necessarily allow yourself when you're in your regular day-to-day life. Right. Yeah. I think my thing with the gender in him is he always has to kind of separate men and women. You know, even the dog, the female dog and the female cat don't get a good rap. Mm. in this book you know so Mm. that's always a little bit of a disappointment for me with him and his books which of course he was writing a long time ago they're not that long ago this book came out in 1960 yeah you know that's a long time in the world of gender i think i'm just saying you know he was a man of his time i'm not making excuses for him at all yeah see this is the thing i'm really getting tired of that Mm -hmm. you know this is me i've been (laughs) studying the 19 teens and women and men and I just get really tired of that. But it's true. Mm-hmm. It, it is people from their time. Yeah. One of the things that cracked me up about this book is he was a man that wasn't afraid to tell you how bad he was with directions, <laughs> yes. which was kind of the point of what he was setting out to do was to get places. <laughs> my God, he's constantly getting lost. Oh, my gosh. Yes. And in big cities. And he's not driving like a little sedan. He's driving this big camper. Right. So it's problematic in many different occasions. The story even ends with him lost and he's back home. Right. (laughs) Well, he's back home in New York and he's lost. And the cop that comes up to him as he's being a bit hysterical in his truck is like, you know, what's wrong? And he says, I'm lost. I live here and I'm lost. And the cop says, ah, don't worry about it. I was lost in Brooklyn last weekend, you know? So (laughs) it's just kind of funny. Um, So that's the thing about Steinbeck. Like, I do feel like the gender stuff rubs me the wrong way, but he's really vulnerable a Mm. lot of the times in this book and almost puts himself in the traditional fair maiden who needs help kind of position, Mm -hmm. which is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe it's because he was getting to that point in his life where that happens with men is that, you know, they have less testosterone and can be more in touch with their sensitive side. And I feel like that was happening with him as he did this traveling. And what is frequently true with people is that part of them can come out with their animals. And he's traveling with this buddy, Charlie, who's a big poodle and is a character in and of himself, <laughs> totally. you know, in this book. And I have to say, I was listening to it one of my days traveling here to Book Cougar's headquarters, and an older man pulled out in his car and kind of turned right beside me, coming the opposite way. And as he was doing it, his dog was sitting in his passenger seat, and I just saw him like tenderly rub under his dog's chin as he was driving past me. And I thought, there it is, mm-hmm. you know, this simple companionship and tenderness 
I saw it right there as I was listening to Travels with Charlie that's driving amazing. by. Yeah, yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. yeah, he does have a great relationship with Charlie. And Charlie is such a character. And there's one point where he meets an actor who's also traveling on the road. And the actor has a dog that we don't meet. And towards the end of their conversation, Steinbeck asks the actor, what does the dog do? Oh, a couple silly tricks, the guy says. He keeps the performance simple. He picks it up when it goes stale. And I thought, oh, I wonder if that's why Steinbeck included Charlie, or if that was his plan all along, or if he realizes at that moment, like, huh, I might be able to use Charlie as a character in this story. Mm -hmm. I mean, it really works. It really works. Yeah. Yeah. There's some really funny scenes with Charlie. There's poignant scenes. Charlie at one point gets ill. And we're all worried as we're reading that Chris and I already talked about this, like, oh, I don't know if I want to keep reading if something happens to Charlie. I know. I know. (laughs) I was really worried. You know, another interesting point, too, I made a note here that the interstates were new at this point in time, which is something that's hard for us to imagine because we all, for the most part, grew up with them. And at one point, there are instructions on the road, on the interstate that screamed at him, he says, do not stop, no stopping, maintain speed. And I thought that's so fascinating that like people needed to be instructed on how to drive on these new types of roads. And it made me think of like the first time I drove on the Autobahn in Germany. And, (laughs) you know, all the Germans were telling me what I needed to do. And it's like, okay, okay, you know, and those kind of historical details, not that long ago. No. Yeah. And now they're adding roundabouts in our country. And it's freaking people out. And I we have a new roundabout near we, where we live. And I went the other day, and there was just someone stopped right in the middle of it panicking, because they didn't know what to do. And I felt so bad. So I'm sure people were stopping on the interstates, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the things about this book that I thought was funny was he was also remarking on how how much more populated our country was and how crowded everything had become. And I thought, oh, John, you don't even know. Right. You know, things are going to change even more. Yes, exactly. That was very interesting in terms of mobile homes coming in Mm -hmm. and then how popular they were becoming and that that those people didn't pay taxes Mm -hmm. and how that was causing a rift between people who were paying taxes and then feeling like all of these people were coming in and utilizing all of the benefits that are paid for with taxes without that responsibility. So interesting stuff. And I will say the thing about the book that made me sad is the book kind of ends with him in the deep South and driving through the South and how racist it was. And it was at a time where the integration was beginning in the school systems. And it was really sad to me to think That wasn't that long ago. Although we've made great strides, we still have a lot of problems. Right. The scenes that he depicts could be from today. Mm -hmm. And just before that, he's in Texas because his wife is a Texan. Mm -hmm. So he has this whole chapter on Texas, which I thought was kind of interesting. That was the only part of the book that languished a little for me. I don't know how you felt about it. I, I just, it wasn't that it wasn't interesting. I just felt like it seemingly went on a little bit longer than some of the other chapters did. It did. And it made me think of the chapter, or not the chapter, but earlier on in the story. So he leaves from Long Island and he goes on the northern route, like up through Maine and then across and down. And then on the way back, he's coming on a more southern route. So on that northern route, he stops in Chicago 
where his wife comes and meets him. And he says, you know, I had a wonderful time. He's like, but I'm not going to talk about Chicago a lot because it's not the road trip and I don't want to break things up. It's not the literary part of what I'm writing. So that was understandable. But then, like you're saying, in Texas, he does take more time. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if that was a decision made because he's talking about family and friends. Yeah. And if he wanted to just include them Mm -hmm. in that way because he could. I kind of wanted his wife to write a story about her time without John and Charlie. (laughs) (laughs) Just out of curiosity. Like, I flew into Chicago Didn't let the door hit me on the way out. Went back home. (laughs) Had a party. (laughs) Well, she was worried about him. Mm -hmm. And there's one point early on, he says that there's genuine worry about him traveling alone, that he'd be open to attack, robbery, and assault. And I thought, how fascinating that this is a strapping white guy and people are concerned about him Mm -hmm. being out on the road alone. Yeah, well, he wasn't young, like I said. Yeah, but still. And seemingly didn't know how to get anywhere. <laughs> <Well>. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that was the part they were really worried about. Oh, gosh, there goes John. No sense of direction. Yeah. Good luck, everybody. <laughs> but like, wasn't like he was a teetering old man no. by any stretch of the no. imagination. Yeah. He was still doing crazy-ass stuff during a hurricane, jumping in the water yes. to to pry boats apart to save his boat. So he was still yes. very physical. Yeah. So... I guess when he asked his wife, this isn't in the book, it's another thing that was in the intro that I skimmed. He asked his wife if he could take Charlie. Mm. And he was a little worried about asking her because it was a big ask. And I guess she was immediately like, oh, yeah, do. That's a great idea. (laughs) So she said, then that way, like, if you get into a pinch, Charlie could run for help. Mm. And he looked at her and he said, Charlie is not lassie. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to discussing it with the group tomorrow. And we'll see maybe next episode if there's any takeaways we need to share. We'll we'll be back. Yeah. I'm anticipating everybody's going to like this book. Mm, I think so, too. I think so, yeah. So we'll see if there's any surprises. Yeah. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Again, that's Travels with Charlie in Search of America by John Steinbeck. This is our last Steinbeck for the Vintage Book Club. We're moving on to a different author. Yeah. Next up is going to be Anne Petrie. Yes. Can't wait. Looking forward to that very much. We also have a sponsor. This episode is sponsored by Diana Moga, who is a writer and a reserve military officer with a day job. Her debut novel, The Peak Experiment, is loosely inspired by her personal experiences. Carla Castillo is a senior cadet at the Unified Military Academy, where she and her fellow cadets are dropped into a 100-acre training forest during their final exercise, and cadets start to die. Determined to find out what went wrong, Carla plunges into the depths of a government conspiracy. She ultimately learns that ethics are not always black and white, and there's more to being a soldier than doing what she's told. It's available now in paperback and ebook. Check the show notes for links. Biblio Adventures. We have a lot of Biblio Adventures. Tighten your seatbelts. <laughs> I had several Biblio Adventures. One of them is a podcast that I started listening to that I want to tell everybody about. It's the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast. And I hadn't listened to it before. And in season five, They talk to authors who have won the Women's Prize 
and I believe authors that have been nominated as well. And I listened to two that I want to tell you about. And what they do is they ask these authors to come with their five favorite books, which right then I started sweating thinking (laughs) about that. And then at the very end of the episode, they say, okay, now if you had to choose one to be your favorite, which would it be? Jeez, like I was like, you're pushy. But they both did it, the two I listened to. So season five, episode 12 was Maggie O'Farrell. One of the books she talked about was Where the God of Love Hangs Out by Amy Bloom. Oh, cool. Yeah, and I thought it was really cool. And she said she thinks Amy Bloom is really under the radar and more people should be reading her, which we both agree with that. Yes. And then the other one I listened to was season five, episode 15 with Madeline Miller. One of the books she recommended was Kitchen by Banana Yoshimoto. And I had found a copy of this book. I have it on the shelf here at Book Cougars headquarters with you at a used bookstore. I just haven't had a chance to read it. So this made me move it much higher up on my TBR. And it was written in the 90s, but it has one of the first transgender characters in a novel. So that piqued my curiosity when she told me that I wanted to read it for other reasons, but now I want to read it even more. So if you're looking for a new podcast, one talking about books, but also from kind of the author's perspectives and why they liked these books, which I do think they shared and talked about the books in different ways, partly like why they do it, if they need to get through some writer's block or something, why these authors help them. So I really enjoyed it. Again, Women's Prize for Fiction podcast. Those are the two I've listened to so far, but I will go back. Nice. So you mentioned your TBR. I know you use Goodreads. Do you also have like a written TBR or a stack or something? Just No. And I have to be honest, I'm very good at keeping track on Goodreads of what I'm currently reading and what I finished. I'm not great about TBRs on Goodreads. I'll do that like if someone says something to me about a book and I'm not going to remember that, then I'll put it in there. Or if one of my friends on Goodreads has a book that looks interesting, it's so easy to push that button, you know, want to read. I'll do that. Yeah. It's not organized in any way. Mm -hmm. How about you? It's not on Goodreads. It's not organized. And once upon a time, I completely wiped out the TBR section that I had because I thought, I don't even know what half of these books are anymore. And it was just kind of overwhelming me. So I think it's back to over a thousand books or something (laughs) like that now. Because like you, if I'm scrolling and I see an interesting book, I'll just add it. I have a little bit of a list on my wall at home. And I try every month to think about what I'd like to read. I lost that a little bit during grad school, but I'm getting it back. Mm, Really cool. That's very organized. I'm trying to be because like Steinbeck says, there are those books that you have that you're just never going to get to. Mm -hmm. Some of them I know I want to read. And then sometimes it's kind of fun to like match books together a little bit Mm. or to have like something very different from something else. Mm -hmm. So you're kind of keeping yourself stimulated and not reading the same thing. Yeah. And also just recognizing that sometimes if you're too formulaic about it, it might not be the right time to read something and that you have to give yourself the breathing room. Oh, my God. Well, yes, I love making lists. And then I get resentful over them. Right. So (laughs) doing it from month to month is a little bit better. But even that I, I go off the rails pretty regularly. Yeah. And I have to say knowing about Sue's big summer book challenge, which is coming up in mm-hmm. May. It's helpful to me when I have those big tomes. And I'm like, Oh, I really want to read this. But do I have the time and energy to devote 
to it right now. I'm like, well, I can put it on that maybe this summer list, you know? Yeah. So that is probably the only one I do actually keep it, but it's in my mind. I don't have it written down anywhere. Well, I had a biblio adventure to the Beinecke Library at Yale, their, their rare book manuscript library, to do some research on a project I'm working on. I had a great time. One of the books I went in particular to check out is called The Way It Was by Harold Loeb. This came out in 1959. It was his memoir. My interest in him was that he was for a time a partner in the Sunwise Turn bookstore. And he was also the basis of one of the characters in Hemingway's The Sun Also Rises. And not a very great portrayal either. So when I found out that his memoir was called The Way It Was, I immediately thought of, oh, is he trying to correct the record from how Hemingway portrayed him? Because they were buddies in Paris in the 20s together. Harold was from the States and became an expat and a writer. And he also had a literary slash artistic journal that he established called The Broom, I think it was. So it was fun to check out his book because he had a chapter or two on his time at the Sunwise Turn. But then I also requested a first edition of Dracula because I've never held one in my hands before and I wanted to hold one and really look at it. So they had several available there and I chose one that was inscribed by Bram Stoker because I thought what's better than to hold a first edition than to hold one that also Bram Stoker held and you know that he did. So I went and I checked in and there were some other collections I was looking at two letters and, and things like that from booksellers. But with the Dracula book, it was interesting. I got settled and I was working on things and the archivist came up and she said, you know, I'm really sorry, but it doesn't look like we're going to be able to let you access the Dracula book because it's been marked as possibly having poison on it. Cause it's a little problematic, right? A little problematic. <laughs> so, um, it's a yellow cover and I'd heard a lot about green books that have arsenic in them from the 19th century. They didn't realize at the time, I guess, that it was a poison, but I hadn't heard about a yellow book potentially having arsenic. And she was very apologetic. And I said, it's absolutely fine. It's no problem. Thank you. I appreciate it. Then I'm working a little bit more. And then this man comes in wearing vinyl gloves, holding a copy of Dracula. And he sits down and tells me who he is. And he's like, is it this edition that you want? Or is it another one? We can see if there's another one possibly. And I was like, yeah, it was that particular one for the inscription. And he's like, okay. He's like, well, I'm holding it and you can take pictures of it if you tell me where to open it and whatever. So we did that. And I was like, thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming down with this. He's like, yeah, no problem. He's like, we'll look at the other ones and we'll see. So then the archivist comes back and she's like, I'm really sorry. None of them are going to be available. I was like, really? Thank you. It's no problem. I understand. Working again. She comes back again, carrying a copy of Dracula in her bare hands. And she says, you know, we had the conservator look this over and they said it's completely safe for you to handle. And I was like, oh, wait, yay. You know, so that was a nice surprise. But the biggest surprise was turning it over. And seeing the back of it, it looks just the same as the front. It's a mirror image, which surprised me because mm-hmm. I'd never seen the back of Dracula. So it's just this yellow cover with red Dracula at the very top of it. So that was pretty fun. Chris got to Dracula geek out. I did. Yeah. And for newer listeners who may not know, that is the book that turned me into a voracious reader 
as a kid. You know, I'd always kind of read, but yeah. that was like, wow, that really sparked me. And I just... Very cool. Yeah. So that was a great experience. I enjoyed working there. I had never requested materials at the Beinecke, and they were super nice and friendly. And, you know, archives want more people to come mm-hmm. and use their collections. So... If there's something out there that you want to look at in an archive, you know, don't hesitate to contact them. Yeah. Just don't touch any arsenic while you're doing it. Right. (laughs) Yeah. No, I should say there is the Poison Book Project that talks about this. And there are different shades of green. And people who are studying this can kind of tell by looking, I suppose. But there are tests to do. We'll put a link to that Poison Book Project in the show notes if you're interested in checking it out. Yeah, that's very cool. I'd never heard of it until you told me that story. So I got to go see a movie in a movie theater, a matinee, which I don't think I've done since pre-pandemic times and used to be one of my greatest pleasures in life. And it was The Quiet Girl. And this was at the Madison Art Cinemas, which is just down the street from where we live, the next town over. And it's based on the novella by Claire Keegan, Foster, that I read. I had no idea that this movie existed. Foster was published by Grove Press in 22, but the book came out in Ireland in 2010. Claire Mm -hmm. Keegan is an Irish writer. So this movie, you know, must have been in the works probably before the book was published in the States. But what surprised me about the movie is that it was in Gaelic Mm. with English subtitles. And it's such a beautiful language. Um, It was beautifully filmed the cinematography was just gorgeous it reminded me the novella was really small really short spare and yet it became this beautiful hour and a half long movie and this book and movie are about a family in ireland that has quite a few children the mother is expecting another child The father has a drinking problem and is pretty absent. And one of the young girls is brought to a couple's house to spend the summer and is given lots of lovely attention and tenderness. That couple is suffering from some grief that you learn as you read the book. But it's a beautiful book, and the movie was stunning. I highly recommend it if you get a chance to see it. It reminded me a little bit of Brokeback Mountain, you know, how that was this short story in The New Yorker by E. Annie Prue and became this three-hour movie, beautiful cinematography also, very little dialogue, but still so interesting. Interesting, yeah. yeah. Oh, I'd love to watch that just to hear the language. Oh, yeah. so beautiful. Yeah, so again, it's called The Quiet Girl. It's out now based on the novella by Claire Keegan called Foster. Very cool. Well, we had a really big joint biblio adventure to Manhattan. We did go our separate ways a little bit once we got there. So I spent the two days we were there during the daytime at the Stavros Narcos Foundation Library, which used to be known as the Midtown Branch. I'm sure people still call it the Midtown Branch. And this is right kind of kitty corner from the main... New York Public Library that everyone knows with the lions out front. It's a gorgeous building. I watched a video this morning about it that we'll put a link in the show notes for that video. So the building was originally built in 1915 as a department store. It's a big corner building. 
And the library purchased it in the 60s, and then it opened as the Midtown branch in the 1970s. But just very recently, it reopened after a $200 million renovation. That's why it's so beautiful. Yes. And <laughs> it's a renovation that was done and built to last. It's gorgeous. Mm -hmm. It's You and I have been in there before without Ellen. And it was really nice to be in there for an extended period over the two days and really explore all the floors in between work sessions, you know, and just go and, and check it out. Really wonderful seating and study spaces and very well utilized. Yeah, and I was there to go to the Cherry Bomb Jubilee. I've talked about Cherry Bomb magazine before. It was one of my recommendations for holiday gifts this year. It is a print magazine that comes out quarterly and Cherry Bomb magazine and Radio Cherry Bomb, which is a podcast, feature all women restaurant tours, chefs, and it was their 10 year anniversary of Jubilee, which is an in-person event for networking with women chefs and restaurateurs, people who have food products. I was a volunteer, so I got to just be in the background and I was assigned to the cookbook signing sessions, which was not hard work for me. <laughs> I really enjoyed it. I got to talk to these chefs um, and cookbook authors. I also got to talk to the staff of Kitchen Arts and Letters, which is a cookbook store on the Upper East Side in the 90s that I've always wanted to go to, haven't gone, will be going the next time I go to Manhattan. But I got to know some of the staff, which was really fun. And they have events. So I'd like to you know, somehow go back to the city and, and tie it in with an event with them. It was a really lovely chance to see hundreds, literally, I think there were 800 attendees, hundreds of women supporting each other, networking, excited to see these cookbook authors, cookbook authors excited to see each other. <laughs> you know, it was a really great weekend. So cool. Yeah. Yeah. But I did miss you, Chris. Yeah, I missed you too. You know, especially like because Saturday morning, you took off early to mm -hmm. get to there and, and I had class. So I did my class from Aunt Ellen's. Thank you, Aunt Ellen, for letting us stay at your pad again. Yeah, we really so, appreciate it. So lovely. So I did my class and then the weather was going to be kind of iffy. They kept saying there were going to be storms. So I didn't know if I was going to take the subway or walk. I wanted to walk up uh, back to Midtown from the Lower East Side, and thankfully the weather held. So I was able to take a lovely walk up, and I was planning on stopping possibly at the Strand bookstore. I wasn't sure if I would or not, but along the way I had the pleasure of running into Kodak's books. They're a bookstore slash coffee shop on Bowery and Bleecker Street. That was a nice surprise to run into them. And then I also stopped into the NYU bookstore. Didn't anticipate that either. I was look. I was in search of a pencil pouch, a particular kind. They didn't have it, but it was kind of cool to check out their shop. The front part is all dedicated to their spirit gear, and then the back they have books and really a pretty well curated selection of books, including NYU associated writers, whether they're current professors or alumni. That was kind of cool to browse that. I did stop at the Strand, but boy, I mean, it was a Saturday in April and it was beautiful, warm weather. That place was so crowded. I ran downstairs to look for something and then I was going to try and make it to the fiction section. And I was just like, oh, forget it. 
I, I mean, mean it, yeah, it's nice to see people shopping in bookstores, but I find that the strand is overwhelming for me unless I know that I'm looking for something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then to have it be filled with a lot of people would probably be even more overwhelming. Yes, I, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so that was nice to run into those bookstores. I waved at the Barnes and Noble on uh, Union Square. I'd been in there before, so I didn't go in this time and I did need to get up there and get to work. So it was a lovely walk, though. I took a lot of photos of graffiti and things like that, kind of inspired by Jennifer Saverin Kelly in her book, where her character is inspired by art. Yeah, street art. Street art, yeah. yeah. So that was fun. Yeah, I was jealous of you. I mean, I was having a great time, but one of my favorite things to do is just walk the neighborhoods of New York, and it ended up being a beautiful day to do that. Yeah, yeah. it didn't rain at all. I think when we finally met up later that evening... It was just starting to very lightly sprinkle. Yeah, our walk to Grand Central was, we got a little tiny bit wet. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. it was a great couple of days yeah. that we had together. I had one other Biblio adventure. I watched, I binged, I should say, very clearly, I binged because... I have a huge work project, so I need I need procrastination. <laughs> I binged Tiny Beautiful Things. Oh wow. On Hulu. It was I think eight episodes, I'm pretty sure. This is based on the book by Cheryl Strayed, Tiny Beautiful Things, Advice on Love and Life from Dear Sugar. Cheryl Strayed had a period in her life where she was the advice columnist, Dear Sugar. And that book is a beautiful, talk about a great book to give as a graduation gift. It is a beautiful book about her answering these Dear Sugar letters in a way that no advice columnist had really done before, which wasn't to say, you know, it wasn't like etiquette and things like that. It was taking her own experiences in life and, um, responding to these people in a very thoughtful, vulnerable way. There's it's 10 years old. So there's a new edition that just came out and it has new letters. And, and this one is called is just called advice from dear sugar. It's called tiny, beautiful things advice from dear sugar. Um, and sh there is an audiobook, which is how I first consumed and loved this book. I don't think there's an audiobook for the new edition. I looked and I didn't see that. Mm. If I'm wrong out there, people, please correct me. But um, she does, Cheryl Strayed does read the audio version that I did listen to. And mm. I mean, you will cry, you will laugh. The show is stars Catherine Hahn, who I love as basically as Cheryl Strayed. Now, I've seen interviews with Cheryl Strayed, and she says, you know, yes, it's very semi-autobiographical, but they also took artistic license. It is somewhat different from the book. But it is, they do weave in, like, when she became Dear Sugar, and um, her mother is in the show, which is very much a, a lot of what she writes about is her experience being a, in her 20s when her mother passed away from cancer at the age of 45. Mm. So if you're looking for a really beautifully filmed, interesting show that will make you cry just like the book does. I highly recommend it. Again, it's on Hulu, Tiny Beautiful Things. Eight hours of bliss. Wow. Actually, I don't think that I think that's part of why I binge it. I think yeah. they're like 35 minutes or oh, something. Okay. They're not oh, like super so long. That's why your lights were on yeah. late the other night. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Chris 
do you have any upcoming jaunts planned? Well, I um I am going to be attending that Willa Cather event that I mentioned last time. Author Benjamin Taylor is going to be talking about My Antonia on April 27th, and that's through the National Willa Cather Center. So check that out if you're interested. It's, I think, 20 bucks a session, and there are going to be four, and you can get it prorated if you purchase all four. But exciting stuff in Willa Cather land going on. Her birth home, which is in Gore, Virginia, just outside of Winchester, Virginia, has been just rotting away for decades. And the previous owner who people had tried to purchase it before, it's a protected building. You know, it's on the National Register of Historic Places and the Virginia version of that. But no sales ever went through. Every sale just did not happen. But he passed away recently and his heir is selling the property. So the National Willacather Center, they're too tied up financially and also personnel-wise to do anything about it. But they are supporting efforts to raise funds for the Cather family and others to purchase the property. It's going on the market on April 20th. So $200,000 is the cost of the property, I think, is what it's going to be. And then Ashley Olson, who's the executive director of the foundation who we've interviewed before on the episode, she estimates it's going to cost about a million dollars to stabilize the home Mm. because it does look like it could collapse any day. Um, Mm. It's in bad shape. So that's exciting news. And I hope they are able to purchase it and save it because, you know, we don't have a lot of literary heritage in our country comparatively to Mm -hmm. other countries. So I think it'd be nice to see that saved. Yeah. Yeah. It was her grandmother's home that she was born in. So, yeah, we'll report back and let you know what happens. That's yeah. So cool. What about you? I have a virtual event on April 26th at 7 p.m. I'll put a link in the show notes. This is with Maggie Smith in conversation with Alyssa Altman um, about her new memoir, which is out now. You could make this place beautiful. Oh, I loved this book so much. And this is a joint event with Barrett Bookstore and Main Street Books. So again, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And I want to remind people about the Newburyport Literary Festival on April 29th at 9 a.m. I'll be in conversation with Dr. Karen Fine and then at 3 p.m., with Megan Marshall. It's 100% free. Come visit. Go visit. Yeah. So this is Newburyport, Massachusetts. So especially if you're in New England and it's easy for you to get to, that'd be so much fun. I haven't attended it yet, but I've heard amazing things about this festival and one of their local bookstores. Yeah. Jabberwocky Books is a great bookstore. This festival always takes place on Independent Bookstore Day. So it's also a great excuse to go and shop the last time I was there, which was many years ago now, because it was pre-COVID, there was a, another bookstore on the main street, the name of which is escaping me. But it's a great shopping town. There's good food. Come and have a fun day in Newburyport. And please come say hello. Absolutely. And then the weekend after, we're going to be up in Vermont together at Booktopia, which is sponsored by the Northshire Bookstore in Manchester, Vermont. Yeah, May 5th and 6th, there are still tickets available. You can go without a ticket to the Saturday night event where all of the authors speak for a short period of time. If you want to attend the individual author events from May 5th through 6th, you do need to purchase a ticket and there are still tickets available. I'll put a link in the show notes to that. 
Many great authors are going to be there. We're not going to prattle them all off to you, but if you follow the link we put in, you can see who they are. It's a really fun weekend. You do not have to know people to come. It's a fun, very friendly crew. We highly recommend that you join in the fun if you can make your way up to Manchester, Vermont. Yeah, it's such a good time. And we're not going to be attending those events because we're both too busy right now with work and school projects, unfortunately. But we do plan on attending that Saturday night event that's open to the public because that's always so much fun when the authors have like 10, 15 minutes to talk about whatever they want to. So it's a good way, even if they're not talking about their book, it's a great way to get a little insight into their personality and who they are. Yeah. And then there is a book signing afterwards with all the authors that have been at Booktopia. So it's a good time. Yes. Highly recommend it. And Northshire is just an excellent bookstore. It's an independent bookstore. They have a fantastically curated used section, which I spend a lot of time I in that too. section. Yeah. Um, and then just really great uh, new books and sidelines as well. And a neat cafe mm-hmm. with a lot of eating space. Yeah, it's a wonderful place. So what about upcoming reads? I think we have a buddy read here. I think we do. We are twinsies in our hands. We are both holding copies of Real Life, The Journey from Isolation to Openness and Freedom by Sharon Salzberg. Yeah, this just came out, I think, last week. And she's been doing a little series with the word real in her books. And so we're going to get to talk to her next week also. And I'm curious to ask her what this series in general means to her because she has a book called Real Happiness, Real Happiness at Work, Real Love, Real Change, and now this one, Real Life. Part of what she talks about in this book is aspirations, which I'm really curious to ask her about that. She has a great podcast called The Meta Hour, if you're interested in finding out more about her and her lovely voice, which I can't wait. <laughs> yeah, and she's a she's a Buddhist teacher mm-hmm. who has been quite prolific and active in American Buddhism for quite a while. So it's going to be a real honor to talk with her. And so stay tuned for a future episode of our conversation with Sharon Salzberg. Yeah. And then in the Out Now category... Saturday Night at the Lakeside Supper Club by J. Ryan Straddle is out now. I waxed poetic about this book, I think, on the last two episodes. (laughs) Very jealous that one of our Booktopia friends, Chris, is going to be interviewing J. Ryan Straddle during the Sunday sessions, which are virtual at the Newburyport. So I can't wait to poke her about that a little bit and tell her how jealous I am, but probably good that I'm not talking to him because I would probably just fangirl the whole time. And then we also want to remind people about our next read along. Yes, our next read along is The Reading List by Sarah Nisha Adams. This is our second read along of the year in our year of reading books about books. Yeah, and Sarah's going to be on an upcoming episode later in May. But we want to remind people that the Zoom read-along discussion of this book will be on Sunday, May 21st, 7 o'clock Eastern Time. We have a few spots left. Send an email to bookcougars at gmail.com if you would like to be part of that conversation. If you read the book and you just want to 
pipe in. We also have a Goodreads thread going about the book. And if you want to just email us with any comments you have that we could possibly ask the author, we would love for you to participate that way as well. Yeah, absolutely. That's always fun. So this is it, y'all. There's no guests this week. It's just us. Just us. So (laughs) we wish you lots of happy reading. Thanks for listening to The Book Cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine. We'll be back again with another episode in two weeks. Until then, come chat with us on social media, Goodreads, or email us at bookcougars at gmail.com. If you'd like to help support our podcast, please tell others about us, leave a review wherever you listen, and consider becoming a patron. Even a dollar a month is a big help. Learn more about that on our website, bookcougars.com, where you'll find the show notes for this and all of our past episodes. Thanks, everybody. This episode was edited by Pat Keogh Sound Design.